I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. Events don't elicit feelings. I think beliefs elicit feelings. What is leadership like in today's football world? That's right. It's time for another episode of your favorite podcast, Bob Ford's favorite podcast. There's no podcast like this podcast anywhere. Absolutely. Uh, we are we are delighted to have Inquire columnist Bob Ford joining us in the closet on the second floor of the Novacare Media Compound. That's where delight lives. Is the second floor this, closet this is, of the media compound. This is a compound. nice setup, you guys. I didn't know about the aquarium. Yes. I, I, I wish you guys could see us right now. If the, the kids should invent like a streaming video service that you can broadcast live. That would, be, that would be great. This is the bunker that all the people on my Twitter and Facebook feeds are, are hiding in after the election last right. night. No, number one rule for this podcast is no talk about the election. Okay. Done. I'm, I'm still a little hungover. Wait, <laughs> wait a minute. Was, was that yesterday? I don't know. Life is meaningless. Um, we're we're going to talk about the Eagles because they're playing a football game this week. And uh, as the Romans taught us, there's no better way to deal with a crumbling empire than to Submerge head yourself. to the Coliseum. Head to the Coliseum and submerge yourself in entertainment. Uh, we just got out of Doug Peterson's press conference, and he spoke on a number of different topics. Mike Sielski, what, what was the big takeaway from you? He's uh, standing up for his players, and particularly Doriel Green Beckham, quite a bit. They seem to think there's something there with a guy who is six foot six and powerfully built and yet struggles to get his hand on a football thrown near to him um, in situations that other receivers of his size seem to make plays. Um, you know, we've kind of gone over this before, but, you know, it seems to me that the Eagles kind of go in whatever direction they want to go based from week to week. One week it's, hey, we're in the, we got to win this game and we're in the playoff race. And the next it's, well, this guy's still a developing player and this guy's still a developing player. And, um, you know, we're trying to find out about all these guys. I mean, I think from a practical standpoint, the season is kind of gone for them. They're four and four, they're 0 and three in the division. Um, at some level, you shouldn't be giving Darren Sproles the ball 18 times a game on 80% of, your offensive snaps, but what do I know? Um, Darren, although Darren Sproles is kind of like uh, the the Black Knight in Monty Python, where mm-hmm. like he's got such a low center of gravity, I'm not sure that you can really hurt him anymore. That yeah. you know, like he's kind of just like hopping around out there uh, <laughs> on his torso. Yeah, I, I think Doug leaning on on the receivers and on you know that's got to come around for us, and I believe in these guys is a reflection of the fact that he is convinced now, they're certainly not going to come out and say it, that there is not no. going to be a running game. Right. There's simply right. not going to be a running game. And certainly not with Lane Johnson out, and certainly not with Barber out, and certainly not with the with the running backs that he has on his roster. You know, the fact that he does run Sproles on a fourth and one just shows you how much confidence he has in his running game. That You know, maybe this guy can slip through a crack in the line because I certainly don't have anybody who's going to create a hole in the line. So I think, honestly, it's just getting back to the fact that he doesn't think they're going to run the ball and is going to have to be throwing the ball. And as much as he says, gosh, I would like to dial back Carson Wentz's attempts and I don't want to see him throwing 40 and 45 times a game. Fellas, we haven't seen that for the last But, but here, here's what's interesting to me about that. Apart from Ryan Matt. Matthews fumbling late against the Lions and fumbling late against the Vikings. What has happened that would cause him to deviate from that or to think, is it just the injuries on the line? 
is is that it? You know, that Redskins game where Vitae is out there and Lane Johnson is gone and therefore we can't run the ball anymore? Um, because he's not he's only given the ball to Sproles now. I mean, Wendell Smallwood ripped off 19 yards in his first carry against the Giants, got six on his second, didn't see the ball again. Kenyon Bonner, Barner scored a touchdown. Ryan Matthews scored a touchdown. Is it that he doesn't believe in the backs? You know, two of whom you would need to kind of see what you have there because they're young and presumably part or at least potentially part of your future? Or is it just because, hey, the line is the line and we're not going to be able to run the ball no matter who well, we give no, it to? I, I, think there, I think you're right, but I think there's only there's one other factor. Darren Sproles is the only one of those guys that can, can pass protect. He's the only good blocker they've got in the backfield, and that line needs help. And if you put Kenyon Barner and Wendell Smallwood back there, it's going to be a, you know a highway for, for blitzers or, or just for guys who are beating their man at the line. Yeah, like running back to me is – the one position in the NFL that I have no idea about because mm-hmm. you see guys like look at Doug Peterson's last stop. Uh, you know, the one year Jamal Charles gets hurt or whenever Jamal Charles gets hurt, now Davis goes in and, you know, rushes last for 200 year. yards a couple times and, and you never hear from him, from him again. Same thing with James Starks. Remember when he, how he looked against the Eagles like eight years ago and you're like, wow, Pat, like this guy's a, you know, pretty decent running back. I'd give it to him on third and short. And yet, Packers go out and spend a second-round pick on Eddie Lacy. Uh, or was it a first-round pick? Somewhere like a high Either way, they, spent a, like they spent a high draft pick on a running back, which is not a very Packers thing to do. And, you know, Eddie Lacy gets every benefit of the doubt. And so I think running back might be one of those positions where, A, guys just really struggle to learn the offense, and, B, struggle to pass protect. And I think they might go hand-in-hand. Hand. And I think that that's a tough thing for coaches to point out because you're eventually you, – you're essentially throwing a player under the bus if you say he's not playing because he does not know the offense. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I do. And the other thing, which is very true about running backs, is that once they learn how to play the game at the NFL level, their career is over. They don't last very long. These guys are gone. So, I mean, it is a churn, and you're always looking to develop that guy. But you also have in the back of your mind, two years from now, I'm going to need another one. Yeah, like, yeah. I, But the running back thing, I wrote about it on Sunday yeah, after the yeah. game. And it is baffling because – even when, like, like, what I don't understand is why does Barner get the ball in one situation and Wendell Small would get the ball? It just seems like a weird, <laughs> yeah. like. Well, if Chip were still here, he'd say, well, that's just the way Deuce was rolling. Actually, right, 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 yeah. Well, but, but, but actually, Chip. The way was, the game expressed itself. <laughs> it's funny. It's actually funny, Chip Kelly-wise, this season has in some ways been a vindication of him because last year we spent every week asking him why DeMarco Murray was getting the ball more times than Ryan Matthews, even then, even though to the naked eye, it certainly appeared as if right. Ryan Matthews was the far better, you know, one cut runner for this offense. And, you know, maybe, maybe Doug Peterson, whatever, the whatever, same thing. whatever, yeah, whatever the reason it was, apparently Doug Peterson says, sees the same thing, the same way Jim Schwartz sees the same thing in Michael Kendricks and Vinnie Curry. I, you know, I think there's just a lot beneath the surface uh, you know, these guys just might not be very good in the meeting room. You know, I don't know. Like, there's just a lot that goes on behind the scenes. I mean, the, the Titans released Oriel Green Beckham, the second round pick, a year after, uh, you know, they drafted him. They actually traded, traded him. him. Or tra- well, okay. they would have released him yeah. if not. I mean, they essentially the wonderful Dennis Kelly. Yeah. But but getting back to him, you're you're a hoops guy. You're, tell the audience that you're indicating in my direction. I am, I am gesturing yeah. in Bob Ford's direction. The audience already knows. I'm, I'm over here I'm by the guy. aquarium. Bob Ford is a hoops guy. Uh, covered Charles Barkley's Sixers back in the day. He, he he's not young in the tooth anymore. But George Mikan was a hell of a player. Too. <laughs> That's some of a gun. If he did, if he didn't shoot with the laces, as long as he didn't shoot with the laces, he, uh, he was good. Bob Ford covered basketball when it, when it was still basket space ball, and they used actual baskets. 
Peaches, I believe, was they had Robert. A, they had a jump Peaches. ball but, after every basket. They had a okay, jump ball. Okay, so you just said the, ter- the the word I was going to use, jump ball. When you see Doyle Green Beckham play, he looks like one of those guys in high school who a five foot nine inch kid like me, Dave Murphy, who loved hoops and thought he could be an NBA player if he just had some height, would like smack themselves in the head when they watched them play because they were so bad, even though they were six foot seven. He has no body control, you know. And I think that like when you see guys like Jimmy Graham and Antonio Gates come from the basketball court, and Tony Gonzalez you know, to the football field, the reason why they're so able to succeed is they have that body control and they're able to, to adjust to the ball in the air the way a hoops player does down low and, you know, at the rim when they're finishing. And I think Doyle Green Beckham just doesn't have that. And I think the Titans realize that. And I think we're all seeing it on a daily basis. Like he just has no, he has no spatial awareness and no body control. Well, I'll change your analogy a little bit from a hoops analogy. Which one? There were like four different there, analogies. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot together, going yeah. in there. To, to a carpentry analogy in that tools are great. It's great to have tools, you, but you could give me the greatest woodworking tools in the world and I can't build a cabinet. And there are guys that are professional athletes who have tools, but that doesn't mean that they, can, they are put together in such a way to use them where you wouldn't smack your head and say, my gosh, why can't DGB get open or catch a jump ball? Or, you know, we talked, you talked about Barkley. Barkley was a six foot five and a half leading rebounder, top ten in the league every year. You know why? Because he had this innate thing of where the ball was going to be, this calculus that he could do of getting rebounds against taller guys. So it's not always about tools. You know, Charles could build the cabinet. He, he didn't need the greatest tools, but some of these other guys, and I think DGB is one of those guys. Yeah, I, I think we're finding that out. Not not merely in. The passes he doesn't catch when they hit him in the hands. I mean, there have been, I would say, three, four, maybe more contested throws that Wentz has made to him that have hit him in the hands that would have been tough catches, but that he probably ought to have made and that you see receivers of his size make. What was striking about that game against the Giants on Sunday was that Wentz would throw the ball to a spot and he wasn't anywhere near the spot. Like there was no connection on it. There was no play for him to make on the ball because he wasn't where anywhere near Wentz was throwing it. And that struck me in, in a sense of like, is he running the right route? Is he fighting off the line of scrimmage in with the tenaciousness that a receiver, any receiver, let alone one of his size and strength ought to have. And it got back to what people in Tennessee were saying about him when that, tr- just before that trade was made, which was, you know, he's got to be consistent and bringing it every day at practice and every day in the game and every play of the game. I wonder if we're starting to see that now. You know who he reminds me of? Dominic Brown. Yeah. Like, you watch Dominic Brown run. Ford's laughing at me. He loves the analogies I pull out of my keister. <laughs> but seriously, when you watch, when you watch Dominic Brown, when you, when you stood next to him and you're like, wow, this guy's 6'6. Six, six, he like has a build of muscle, yeah. six pack, like everything. Like he's he's athletic, whatever. You look at him, you're just like that guy's an athlete. But then when you watch him run, it looks like Bambi when he's on ice in that scene from the movie. It's like, oh my god, has this guy ever used his legs before? And I think Doriel Green Beckham is is exactly like that. Where he, you know, I don't know that it's it's a psychology thing, it uh, you know, a mental toughness thing, a uh, you know, fortitude thing. I think it's just that like he doesn't know how to like he's like still in puberty almost like Dominic Brown looks like he never escaped from puberty and and I I get the same sense when I watch Doyle Green Beckham try to track a ball and adjust to it in the air well all right so this this I'm going to try a segue here to what Bob wrote off of Sunday's game against the Giants because I thought it was really interesting you read Bob's columns gun to my head um (laughs) so (laughs) it, it 
w- one of the things that would be possible for Peterson to do to address the Beckham situation, such as it is, is to demand more from him. Say, look, you're either you got to get to that spot, or you got to play harder, or you got to do X, Y, and Z. And one of the questions about Doug that came out of last week with the whole Josh Huff situation was his command of the locker room now that he basically got his legs cut off one day after like standing, the Dark Knight, in yeah, Monty Python, yeah, one one day after standing up for <laughs> for Josh Huff and we're going to hug him and bring him back to the fold. The Eagles released Josh Huff. And Bob wrote that what we saw from Doug Sunday in going forward on fourth down twice and being uber aggressive with his play calling might have been a reaction and overcompensation for that kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Um, leg cutting that took place of him during the week. So is Peter, I guess my my roundabout question is, is Peterson, even if Doug were to say that to DGB, like you got to be better. Is anybody in that locker room at this point listening to what he has to say, knowing that he really doesn't have final say, you know, doesn't, you know, can make a decision and take a stand and have it contradicted the very next day by the people above him? Yeah. Uh, well, Doug, Maybe that's a leap too far. Doug, but yeah, Doug I, reminds me of Dominic Brown a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, yes. Was he trying to, and this is you know, two plus two equals five sometimes when you try to intuit these things but was Doug Peterson trying to get his swagger back for one of a better word because his swagger I thought was taken away from him by the fact that the organization left him out there to dry he's hugging Josh Huff one day before the organization comes out and goes no hugs there will be no hugs he's gone you know because Josh stood at his locker and I'm still convinced Josh Huff was released because he stood at his locker and said some dumb stuff you know those sound bites killed him yeah Those sound bites killed him they weren't good but yeah i you know losing a locker room you could say th- he had some hollow points to make in that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah losing a locker room is one of those terms we throw around but with professional athletes and we've been around them for a long time these guys don't blame themselves if things start going south they're going to find a reason and the and the the finger ain't going to be pointed inward, you know, so they're going to say, we're being led badly. Look at this guy. He doesn't have any say in the organization. We're not going to listen to him. Now, that's a leap too far right now. That's right. certainly a leap too far right now. But I do think there was a little bit of macho testosterone. I'm going to spit on the ground and go for it here. And these guys, hey, guys, I'm, I'm the sergeant. Come over the hill with me and follow me and let's go. I think there was a little bit of that. I have a question. That, speaking of Bob Ford's columns, which I do read religiously, uh, Maybe not. You're not a very religious person. I'm not. But uh, I do have a question to ask you about your Malcolm Jenkins column first. Uh, In fact, I'll ask you that now. But I I just want to go back to the press conference because I don't want to forget this. It jumped out at me that he mentioned Paul Turner's name first when he was asked. Doug Peterson, I mean, was asked by, I believe, Zach Berman or Dave Zingaro that um, he was asked why they haven't filled a roster spot yet. Whose roster spot is it that they have to fill? Huff. Huff. Oh, they still haven't filled? Nope. Wow. No. Um, so they still haven't filled that roster spot. I would assume because the guy would have been inactive anyway. Uh, and he was asked, why haven't you done it yet? And Peterson said, that's coming. And he, and he rattled off some names at practice. And, and the first was Paul Turner. And the second was uh, the cornerback, Brent Grimes yeah. or Aaron Grimes. Aaron Grimes. So I don't know if that jumped out of you at all. I should probably ask you that. And, and are we starting to see a pivot, to use a political phrase um, or a journalism buzzword? Are we starting to see a pivot towards the future at four and four? Are they? Are they? Do I they? You started out asking a question about the Malcolm Jenkins. So my column. second. All right. Now that I'm, before I forget that, 
the Malcolm Jenkins column. Was Malcolm Jenkins taking a shot at the coaching staff, or was he take? Do you get the sense that maybe Malcolm Jenkins is saying, I thought, "You guys messed this team up when you traded Sam Bradford." I thought he, Malcolm Jenkins was taking a shot at the offense, and when you take a shot at the offense, you are taking a shot at the coaching staff because yes. no, this what, is an offense coaching staff. Right, but what I'm saying is, there's still that. To me, there's still the Sam Bradford question lingering over everything, where the quarterback best suited to run the kind of offense that Malcolm Jenkins described in your column would be Sam Bradford. A game, a game manager. Yes. A guy who does not throw interceptions, a guy who makes the right reads, who doesn't try to do too much, and, and who trusts in his defense. And I don't necessarily remember what Malcolm Jenkins' reaction was after they traded Sam Bradford, but but he kind of, I got the sense that he bit his lip at times. Not that these guys don't have faith in Carson Wentz. No, but I think, veterans, but like, I, veterans like veterans. veterans. I, I will but, say this about Jenkins. Jenkins was not someone, like he was He was kind of the most, when the whole Bradford holdout thing happened, you know, when he stayed away for the two weeks in the offseason, Jenkins was, was very much like, look, this is what happens. Like, you know, guys do this, they, you know, and it's okay, and he'll come back, and everything will be cool. You know, th- he's a pro. We're fine. This happens. Like I'm wondering if more than the coach, the coach, if some of the veterans in the in the locker room are finally starting to say, "This is what happens when you do everything that you've done over the last year." We believe that we had a dominant enough defense where all you have to do is give us an offense that you know takes what's given to it, and, and we can win. Like we saw. Like I wouldn't be surprised if Malcolm Jenkins views this Eagles defense as like on par with the Broncos from last year. Because well, like I, that's just how people. Well, that's just how people. I think. I think we also have to be careful a little bit, even though this is what we do for a living. Right. In taking what a guy says 15 minutes after right. a hard loss as a well thought out, you know, philosophy. But yeah, Malcolm Jenkins looks at the offense and you know that one quote. You know, even if they're not driving the ball 80 yards every time, hey, we'll get a we'll get a turnover for them, or, or there's going to be a nice long return by the special teams, set them up on the short field, and they'll get us some points and they'll take those field goals. Well, you know, that's like let's put some training wheels on this offense, and that's the only chance we got to win. You know, so so that's what I took away from that. But again, it was 15 minutes after a hard loss. And and, and let's remember that is the offense that they ran the first three weeks of the season when they were three and zero. Wentz was not throwing the ball downfield as much. They were controlling the clock. There was a much better balance to running the ball. And bear in mind, the, the game that the moment that probably turned their season really, that game in Dallas, when you know Wentz throws that screen pass to Sproles and it loses six yards, and Doug decides to punt instead of kicking the long field goal, that's a pretty conservative way to go as a head coach. I'm not going to mess this up. I'm going to put it in the hands of my defense. And what happened? The defense allowed the Cowboys to go 90 yards and tie the game. So, you know, it gets back to what Murph said a minute ago and what you said, Bob. You know, players don't like to point inward. They'll find something else to look at. And I'm not suggesting that that clearly anybody who watches Carson Wentz play understands why the Eagles like him and and why he's in there. But, like, Brent Selleck was a guy after the Sam Bradford trade – that kind of summed up the locker room to me where you got the sense where it was almost like grudging, like, yeah, like the guys, look, the kid's good. Like he's going to be a good quarterback. While at the same time, kind of understanding that Peyton Manning was a very good quarterback as well. And he threw 31 interceptions his first year. And if you're Brent Selleck, who's been in the league for 11 years, and if you're Malcolm Jenkins, whose, whose time is ticking down, potentially you've only got so many seasons to see this kid develop. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is I talked to Jason Peters after the Giants came for a while and he had the exact opposite 
take. I mean, here's a guy who's 34 who could very well be released in the offseason because of his cap hit in 2017. And he was very much like, no, Wentz is going to be good. We under, you know, we roll with him. He's, you know, you deal with it and, and that's just it. But we know, you know, I compared him to Aaron Rodgers at the beginning of the season and I stand by him now. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of different opinions in there, but Jason, again, is an offensive player and Malcolm is a defensive player. Let's so also maybe that makes remember that we go back and talk about those first three games of the season and, and how Doug was calling the game and how the offense was running then. It was also running with Lane Johnson. It was also right. running with Alan Barber. Everything got out of whack. And, you know, how much more simple can we put it than they're not very talented right now and they're getting beat by teams that are more talented. And you can have whatever scheme you want and whatever play calling and get behind me, guys, and let's go get them. And it, it just ain't there right now. Yeah, I mean, they are – as Dennis Green once said, rest in peace. They are what we thought they were. What um what do you take of the, make of the criticism of Peterson? Uh you know, a lot of people have taken the fourth down hindsight and the field goal hindsight at, at the end of the Dallas game to say he's got the same flaws as Andy Reid, not a great game manager. You know, we're starting to see Dougie over his skis. I mean, is that going too far? Well, to use a apropos analogy today you know his exit polls are pretty good after game three right after after they after they beat pittsburgh it looks like he's going to be the guy and he's going to sail into you know the next part of his career and it doesn't look that way now because this is such a results business but yeah we're some of that leakage you know about his reputation you know when he was hired and i feel bad about this i want to say this publicly i called him tank mcnamara in the in the paper (laughs) Like the day after he was hired, because he's a kind of square jaw, kind of doofy guy with the visor and, and, you know, he might not be the brightest guy in the world. But, boy, he looked really smart after week three. And, you know, he hasn't gotten that dumb since then. So he's the same guy. This is great. We've got an entire entire new generation of culture references that I don't understand. Yeah, it's bad enough when I, I go back I to the 80s and is. the early 90s. Jack McNamara was a comic strip character who was an ex-football player who was, I believe, a broadcaster. Yes. And he was just like... The dumb guy on the uh, on the set of the of the uh, evening news. Do you read that after you watch your programs at night? After my stories, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, after my, <laughs> yeah, and I've started using Betamax for my stories. It's 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 great. It's working out terrifically. Did I'm you gonna, ca- seriously? Did you catch you around? <laughs> I'm gonna kick you. What? Did you catch the uh, uh, diagnosis murder episode that was on last night? It was awesome. I was watching Matlock. Oh, okay. Right. Which is the, is diagnosis murder the one with Angela Lansbury? No, it's the one with Dick Van Dyke. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> you guys, you guys and my parents would really get along. Um, what have you seen out of the Sixers so far, Bobby? Since I got you here, the Sixers. Yeah, they're one of the most horrendous on the ball defensive teams I've ever seen in my life, and they also don't jump switch or or help. They're, it's it's a bad bad defensive team. And is I'm that not, because of Brett Brown or because of the personnel? I think it's the guard play. I don't think that they can get in front of anybody. I think they're very, very average guards defensively. And then, you know, so guys, to use a football term, guys get into the second level, and then it gets real crowded, and they give up a lot of points. So I know Mike Sielski is a – I don't know if skeptic's the right word. I'm just – I'm open to the possibility, as much as I like Brett personally and as much as I can appreciate the tough situation he's been in, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that he may not be – the coach that is going to move forward with this team and that there may be reason for that. Yeah, and this stuns me because I always thought you could sit, you know, a Labrador retriever next to Popovich for eight years and he's going to be a good coach at the end of it. And Brett Brown had one job last season, one job. Wasn't win games, 
wasn't to do very much, figure out how to play Nerlens Noel and Jalil Okafor together. One job all year long. By the end of the year, he would thrown his hands up. They were never on the court together. So that worries me. I mean, maybe if those pieces just won't fit. Maybe, you know, Red Auerbach couldn't have made them fit. I don't know. But Brett Brown didn't. And that, that led me to worry a little bit. Yeah, Red, Red Auerbach, was he like Tank McNamara's sidekick? Was, was that a comic strip? You I know, mean, after just... this podcast is over, <laughs> David, you and I are going to have a conversation. It's funny. I, I once asked... I once I, I enjoy busting Jimmy Salisbury's stones as well, and I once asked him if he, he was like going on about Pete Rose. This was like my third year on the beat, and I asked him if Pete like Pete Rose was he a good player? And he like I can only picture Jim's reaction. And he, you would have thought his head was going to explode. And to this to this day, he's convinced that I was legitimately asking him if Pete Rose was a good player. <laughs> And it's still, and it almost makes it worth it because he's still riled up about yeah. that. Well, two two things to get back to to Bob's point about Brett and not figuring out the Noel Okafor situation. He's been reluctant so far this season to try the Embiid Okafor situation, which on paper and in theory would seem to be easier to negotiate because Embiid can play farther away from the basket. Even though he's seven two, he can he's leading the NBA in three point shooting, um, and there ought to be a way to figure that out. Um, I would think, and only now is he going to, it seems, willing to give it a try. The second thing is, after the loss to the Cavaliers a couple nights ago where Gerald Henderson made that awkward drive to the basket and got fouled but didn't get the call because it didn't look like he'd been fouled because he didn't really make a hard move to the hoop. If you watched Comcast Sportsnet afterwards, Jim Lynham, in analyzing those final possessions, really put Brett under the microscope in terms of on-court spacing and what's supposed to happen on a play like that, independent of the talent you have on the floor. And that to me was, that was kind of an eye opener. Like, like you know, I know Murph and I, I get what you're saying. And I've agreed with you for the most part about the idea of like, hey, he doesn't have a whole lot, so it's difficult to evaluate him. But I think there's a lot of merit to what Bob and what Jim Lynham said, which is there there is something to be said for taking whatever it is you have and extracting the most out of it. And they've had opportunities to win games in these first six. That opener against Oklahoma City, that game the other night against the Cavaliers, you know, the beginning of the second half against Charlotte where they were up seven at halftime and just allowed Charlotte to just come out and blitz them in the beginning of the third quarter. These are things you see over and over and over again, and I just, and they, they're not getting fixed. So here's a question for Bob as a guy who's covered the NBA through multiple different uh, era. I, like I was a big Jordan era NBA guy, uh, and I feel like coaching was a much more prominent like you had coaches back in that day that stuck with teams and here I feel like I couldn't even name you half the coaches in the NBA and I watched like the Knicks play and like Jeff Hornacek's probably not a dummy but like is he really saying that Porzingis should only shoot four shots a night or is just that what his players do when he's out on the court do you know what I'm saying like can you coach Carmelo Anthony to to run an offense through Porzingis like can you coach you know these guys who've essentially played one way their entire life, which is, you know, you're the best player on the court, do whatever you want. I, I think I know what your question is. Yeah, it's even, not a, even though it wasn't expertly so I guess what I'm saying is, are there really, aside from Popovich, Phil Jackson, uh, Steve Kerr maybe, are there, are there just great coaches and not great coaches? Like, does it, like is Eric Spolestra a great uh, coach? Chuck, is, Chuck Daly, do you remember? Do yes, you ever, I you ever do. Hear of Daly? bad boys. He said that NBA Mavericks play, drafted Dirk Nowitzki. He said that in the NBA, the players allow, allow the coach you. to coach, and that's and that's what it is. The players are in charge. The players allow the coach to coach. And yeah, are we in a 
generation now, not to be generational, that AAU basketball has destroyed team play, maybe, you know, and one and done in the college is at the elite, elite uh, talent level has destroyed team basketball, maybe. You, you referenced Jordan. Jordan was the best coach on that team. I mean, by far, he coached that team. And he made that team work, and he made that team play like a team where they had to deal with him. And there aren't that many guys like that anymore. So so I guess that's my question. Is is it Brett Brown, or is it just that he can't get No, they play? should be better. They okay. should be better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, and they don't have to be much better. I, I think if they had won, if they had stolen that opening night game against the Thunder, for instance, the tenor of this changes a little bit. It's the fact that they are 0-6 again, and that adds to this. But... Again, like he he doesn't have the difference. It seems to me is this season they are not cycling through players with a couple of exceptions in the way that they were in previous years. Like Sergio Rodriguez is not on a tryout. He, there's not he's not Tim Frazier. There's not the possibility that he might get cut tomorrow. They're going to keep him here. They're going to keep Gerald Henderson here. You know, at least for the season. You know, Embiid's going to be here. Okafor for a while. That sort of thing. That should matter in terms of what you do and how you do it. And there doesn't seem to be a discernible difference so far in what's happening out on the floor. So what's the solution? I think that there's two separate parts to that question. There is what's the solution in the here and now for Brett and what's the solution that Brian and secondarily Jerry, or maybe not secondarily Jerry Colangelo, are thinking of. Um, you know, I, I think you have to wait. I think it would be, I, I think they're, they're probably going to, and I think it would be imprudent of them to do anything until Ben Simmons comes back uh, because he could potentially change the dynamic of the team entirely. Yeah, that, that, that was really bad luck. Yeah. That, that was just bad luck. I mean, he's they're, they're a much better defensive team with him on the court, oh, right? Oh, God, yes. They're much better at both ends. Yeah, because um, you don't have a, a six-foot-three Spaniard you know, dribbling the ball up near his eyeballs at the top well, of the key. Well, it's also like – I mean, he's the guy you want with the ball instead of Gerald Henderson at the end of that. Yes. Uh, you know, like that's his situation. Like that's what he's supposed to be there for. Right. So, right. So to answer your question, I don't think, I think it would be wrong and rash of them to make any kind of coaching change if they're considering it before Simmons comes back. Having said that, I think the off season is going to be really interesting depending on how this season goes. What is the latest with Simmons? Is he, is he on track? Is, Jan January. Is that pretty I mean, there was time. It's not official. Okay. But I, I, from all indications, January. So the team is of the belief that he'll play this year? Yes. Okay. And you no longer have an organization that doesn't play guys when they're healthy. <laughs> really? Because Joel Embiid is not playing I know against the Pacers Wednesday night in Indianapolis. And at the beginning the, of the, the season. This whole ministry restriction thing just fries me. I, I can't stand it. I understand that. But my, my only point is. At the beginning of the season, it was going to be minutes restriction and no back-to-backs. Now it's workload. Now it's workload, and this is not a back-to-back -back game. He's had a night off. So you think there playing. might be? Some, do you think there's something going on there? I think it fosters the idea that he's not as healthy as he they say he is, especially after he was supposed to play in the summer league this past summer and didn't. Look, a navicular bone, navicular bone surgery. You know. For you and me, and I know you and I are not seven foot two and three hundred pounds, and and do what he does for a living. It's a six month recovery to full recovery when you do when you do the uh, graft, which they did with the second surgery. We're a year and a half post that now. I mean, what what's going on? Because it, it does. It just makes you wonder. It makes you want. Makes you go, hmm. Are they just being cautious, or do they think you know what? He can't take it yet.
I don't know. Well, yeah. I guess. So why does it fry you the minutes restriction thing? Because that's a legitimate question. I don't. I'm not challenging you on it. I'm just curious. We well, are kind of. No, I'm just curious. I I don't like it. So to a rash like to a to an outside observer, would be like, yeah, if he's because, going back. because it's 18 months post op and right. he's well. Play him. Play him together with Okafor. You know, they're hiding behind the minutes restriction thing with Okafor and uh, Embiid. You know, did not put them on the court together. I want to see them on the court together. Right. I want to see Brett Brown figure out how that's going to work. Who's the four? Who's the five? Who's high? Who's low? That stuff is important. Yeah, especially. And, and I guess they work on it in practice, but you ain't practicing against anybody. No, and especially since, you know, going back to our podcast last week, you know, it was obvious from the beginning of the season and we we discussed this. I, I missed that one. I'm sorry. sorry. Well, yeah. that's all right. I've I've still got it in on the uh, on the TV. You go, you were going through season two of Maud, I'm sure. <laughs> um, on oh, DVD. That was the, that was the good yeah, one. that was the good one. Um, Do they still make TiVo? <laughs> oh, which, yeah, absolutely. Which uh, which was that the way it was looking at early on was Embiid would stay in the game and the offense would flow through him, and then he would come out and Okafor would come in and the offense would fl- flow through him, and then he would come out, and Embiid would come in, and the offense would flow through him again. And that's that's not productive. Like, you, ne- these are two centerpiece players. You need to find out if you can put them on the floor together at the same time. It was it was completely counterproductive. You know, the idea of like, oh, okay, now Jaleel's in. Get him the ball now. You know, boom, 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 boom. As opposed to, like, assimilating him into whatever sort of broader strategy and, and you know, pattern you're, you're creating on the floor. All right. Last question, and then we're going to go do our day jobs. Uh, what's the Eagles' final record at the end of the season? They're 4-4 four and four right now, heading into a game against Atlanta. Well, let's see. They play the Falcons. I think it's a loss. They play the Seattle Seahawks in Seattle. I think that's a loss. They play the Green Bay Packers Monday night at home. Could be a win. Uh, then you still have... Cincinnati. Cincinnati on the road, probably a loss. Baltimore. Baltimore on the road... 50-50. Dallas and Skins here. Dallas and Skins here. You're win. You're probably winning one of those games. So you're looking at seven and nine. Okay. Is that, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's ballpark. Yeah. I mean, so what does that mean? They're going to go three and five. That sounds about right. I agree with that. Um, let's go. That's uh, really exciting. That was a good, exciting question. I know. David. I just need. I needed to find some way to segue to the end because it's getting really hot in here. It is. And, about and you had to get up. away from the Sixers too. Yeah, I know. I know. All right. We'll, we'll talk. Can I, can I say one quick yeah, thing about the, about the Eagles? Sure. And I love the if if Chip Kelly were still here, uh, meme. If Chip Kelly were still here and they were getting this many soft tissue injuries, we would be screaming and writing <laughs> columns about sports science and and. Protein shakes and and stretching and, and plyometrics and Pilates and everything <clears throat> because you know Chip was they've got so many hamstring pulls on this team right now it's ridiculous. <laughs> so you, I'm just glad, I'm glad you got and, and we're not writing that we're not saying that Doug Peterson's uh, uh, physical conditioning program stinks, are we? No, yeah. I'm just, I'm, uh, and does it? Hamstring pulls and minutes restrictions the Bob Ford story. I know. I know. And don't forget about Matlock. That, that, was, that was your yelling at traffic voice, it wasn't was. it? Oh, man. Oh, man. That, no, that's a roll down the window and yell at yeah. traffic voice, which is different from the window stays up and you yell at traffic because <laughs> it hurts your ears. All right. We'll Bob, talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Bob. It's been a pleasure, guys.